The other beautiful thing about Kaizen is because the steps are so small, they don't require willpower, self-control, discipline, um, and therefore, again, the amygdala stays quiet because it's not taking any effort, and you build a habit before the amygdala knew anything was going on. Welcome to the podcast that teaches you how to transform your life and your business. Here is your host, Rick Hyland, and this is CI for Life. Welcome to another CI for Life podcast. Today's topic is One Small Step Can Change Your Life. From this podcast, you'll be able to learn how to apply the principle of small steps to accomplish your personal and professional goals. We always talk about the importance in change management of having the right mindset, skill set, and tool set. In this podcast, you're going to learn specific Kaizen tools and methods to apply to every area of your life. On June 1st, 2019, I wrote a blog on ciforlife.org entitled, By Small and Simple Habits, Great Things Shall Come to Pass. The blog started with the following ideas about change and personal improvement. From Stephen R. Covey, Our character is basically a composite of our habits. Because they are consistent, often unconscious patterns, they constantly, daily express our character. From John C. Maxwell, You'll never change your life until you change something you do daily. The secret of success is found in your daily routine. That uh, Our special guest today is going to confirm the importance of small steps. If you want to get in the best physical shape of your life, then start by doing a simple five push-ups or five crunches first thing in the morning. If you want to become more financially secure and successful, start with saving every day or whatever you can do. Start with small habits. If you want to be more grateful each day, then start with one line in your gratitude. Start small. For every long-term goal, there's a daily habit that you can start to take a small action today towards that goal. Try starting every day with your most important routines. Wake up in the morning and start with those small habits that will eventually lead you to excellence in your chosen goals. Today's special guest is going to help us understand the research behind small steps. My special guest today is Dr. Robert Maurer. Dr. Maurer is the Director of Behavioral Sciences for the Providence Family Medicine and a faculty member with the University of Washington School of Medicine. Dr. Maurer has also studied how individuals, families, and organizations sustain their excellence in health, relationships and work. He is also the associate clinical professor at the UCLA School of Medicine. A couple other notes from his bio that I wanted to, uh, he's the author of uh, several books, but the one that intrigued me is One Small Step Can Change Your Life, The Kaizen Way. It was published in 2004 and now is in 24 languages and it is listed as one of Google's best 100 books. He's also the author of The Spirit of Kaizen and Mastering Fear. His work as a clinical psychologist has resulted in the development of an extensive series of programs designed to meet the challenges of building and sustaining excellence and well-being. Dr. Bob Maurer, welcome to the podcast. It's a pleasure to be with you, Rick. Yeah, I mean, the title uh, Director of Excellence had me there, let alone all the other wonderful (laughs) things that you've done there. How did that title come to pass? Well, uh, I I work in a medical clinic where I train physicians who finish medical school and are in three years of training to become family doctors. 
Yeah. And so I, I go in the room with the doctor with the patient's permission and give the physician feedback on their communication skills. And it was, I originally thought it was going to be a Disneyland for a psychologist because psychologists generally sit in an office, wait for people to make enough problems and, and create enough pain before they come in. Right. I, I was in an exam room when people were coming in for routine kinds of things, whether it was a skin rash or a school physical. Here was this chance to intervene in people's lives before they created problems for themselves, but quickly realized we had no tools to do it. Okay. So what my, our research team at UCLA, where I was at the time, began collecting studies from around the world that followed people anywhere from 15 to 75 years, Rick, to see who over the course of a lifetime, in spite of adversity and setbacks and challenges, would thrive in all three areas of life, health, relationship, and career. Because virtually every success book you pick up talks about how to succeed in jobs or health or relationship. Yeah. But everybody we knew wanted all three to be thriving. Yeah. So we collected over two dozen studies that followed people for extended periods of time. And they all had methodological weaknesses. They all had different measurements. But they all basically got to the same results. So I became very interested in how do you create and sustain excellence across all three areas of life. Mm, I love it. Yeah. And and I found your book, as I mentioned, One Small Step Can Change Your Life the Kaizen Way. I heard some of your interviews on YouTube and LinkedIn and just loved it. And as a lifelong continuous improvement fan, I your message rang so true. So I was uh, very anxious and very grateful that you've joined us today. And I guess another secondary reason is I also have a doctor brother, Darren Highland, and practices in Canada. He's an internist uh, um and specialist, but he went on to get a master's degree in, in critical care research, and that's where he spent most of his career. And so when you talked about all your brain research and your uh, research, I just loved it. And and then when you came upon Kaizen and some of the CI principles and married the two together, I had to have you on this podcast. So Bob, <laughs> take us back. Thank you. And um, how did you, what is Kaizen to you as a medical practitioner? How did you find it? And then how have you used it in your in your practice? Well, the answer to the first question, the, the way, what Kaizen means to me and what, um, what we found was that there were basically two definitions. There was essentially a couple types of change in life, really just two types. The kind we're all familiar with is the Western notion of innovation, taking the largest possible steps to accomplish a large goal. Right. And of course, innovation is good, but as everyone listening to this will realize, um, that sometimes those big leaps lead to big falls, and sometimes the price of that fall is more than we bargain to pay. Okay. So there's a second strategy that we discovered, and I'll talk about how we found it, uh, about making extremely small steps to accomplish large goals. So innovation, large steps to accomplish a large goal, ties in the smallest, most trivial steps in order to get to that same large goal. And then the second definition of Kaizen we got when we began studying breakthroughs in science, business, and art, and found much to our surprise, it was rarely some big aha, but often some ridiculously small moment that somebody got interested in, and out of that small moment, great breakthroughs came. So the way I discovered this is, as I mentioned, I was collecting all these studies on success, mm-hmm. and one day I was one day I was reading the newspaper, and there was a full-page ad. Um, for uh, the Toyota Lexus and for the umpteenth year they were the highest quality automobile in the United States 
And I thought, well, maybe metaphorically, there's something about consistently building an automobile that I could apply to my life and the lives of people I was serving. So uh, it led me to a book called The Machine That Changed the World, which yep. you think would be about computers, but it's actually about the automobile. Well, Mac, and yep. they mentioned they mentioned something, someone called Dr. Edwards Deming, who was a, worked for the Census Bureau before World War II, became very involved in quality control of military equipment during the war. And then after the war, nobody was interested in his funny ideas about quality, but the Japanese have been impressed with our military equipment. They invited Deming over to Japan and used his funny ideas about quality to build some of the highest quality products in the world. So as I began looking at Deming's material, one of the things he was teaching, he wasn't using the word Kaizen, but he was teaching them uh, what they had taught the American manufacturers when they were building tanks and airplanes, and that is look for extremely small, inexpensive, or no expensive ways to improve the process or product. And through those small incremental changes, big leaps occur. So the second definition of Kaizen is using very small moments to achieve large lessons. And if you want later, I can give you some examples. Sure. So I was, so when when I tell this story, it makes me realize somehow I was kind of divinely led. So I was sitting there reading this book by the side of a pool, and this woman next to me uh, said, um, are you finding the book interesting? And I mentioned Deming, and she said to me, I work for Edward Deming. Um, and then she said, that then the Red Sea parted, and she said, we need somebody in the back of the room to sell books if you want to do that for the five-day program, which costs like $10,000 or something. Okay. Uh, you can come meet Dr. Deming and work for him for a week. So I actually sat in on a five-day course he did for CEOs of you know most of the major Fortune 50 companies. Fantastic. And now and that was how I discovered small steps. And then I went on um, went to look in, in on the internet and found there were like 600 references to Kaizen, the small steps. Uh, and it, um, and the, but they were all in manufacturing. And I thought, well, anything that's that powerful in one area must be applied to other areas. And we began experimenting and finding literature on using small steps to improve your romantic life, to improve your health. And that's what got me interested in it. And, of course, working in a medical clinic, you know, everybody knows how to eat right and they know to exercise. But for many reasons, life gets too difficult or complicated or overburdened to do those. We found if we could get people to make very small improvements, big leaps would occur just as they had in manufacturing. Right. Well, I, while you're catching your breath there, I'll just kind of tie in as a practitioner of Lean Six Sigma, of which is part of that philosophy that's come out of the quality movement. We often, you know, yeah. everybody knows about seven-step problem solving and Demaic principles, and they're great and they help. And then we all know about Gemba Walks or visual management, the importance in companies to make your data visible so that everyone can kind of align and have performance conversations around it. But what I like <clears throat> that we often forget is that this is about a mindset as well, a mindset of small steps. Yes. And that's the approach yes. that I think we sometimes forget and that you're tying into. And you had some great examples in the book, and I know you want to share it, of how you then applied it to your practice. Sure. Um, I would find as I was following a resident physician through their day that they would uh, see a patient who 
you know, had high blood pressure or the beginnings of diabetes or whatever, and they would tell the person what the American Heart Association recommendation is, and that is 30 minutes a day, five days a week for exercise. And I could see that this patient's eyes were glazing over, realizing this doctor has no idea what day-to-day life is, is for me. I'm raising two small children. I take the bus an hour each way. Um, but we found that if we could ask somebody to exercise even one minute, uh, getting your heart rate up on, while you were watching a commercial on TV, uh, once an hour or once a day, whatever they would agree to, that over time, they developed the habit. And I realized that I had actually come across this many years before. There was a world-famous pain expert at UCLA doing a two-night course for people with cancer pain. This was long before I met Dr. Deming. And at the end of the first night, he said to the group of patients, I'd like you all to go home and meditate for one minute. Well, I thought that was the dumbest thing I ever heard. <laughs> I waited for the audience to leave, and I went up, and as politely as I could pretend, I said, why one minute? It doesn't seem very long. He very politely said to me, how old is meditation? I said, thousands of years old. He responded, yeah, that's correct. There's a very good chance everybody in this room has heard of meditation before tonight. Those who like the idea have long ago found a book or a teacher and they're doing it. For the rest of the people in this room, meditation is the worst idea they ever heard of. I'd rather they go home and meditate for one minute than not meditate for 30. They may discover they like it. They may forget to stop, which is exactly what the research argues. Yeah, and and talk a little bit about what happens to the brain with small steps versus big steps and and the impact that that helps with uh, our personal change. Well, there's a place in the brain called the amygdala, and it's mm-hmm. where the fear response lives. And so for people that have, have already faced challenges in terms of change and have, have been frustrated, like trying to lose weight or find the love of their life or build a business and, and, and things kind of fell apart, that when they think about going to the gym and getting a trainer and whatnot, all, it triggers the amygdala because they're big steps. And, or to say it differently, the, 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 the idea of a big change like that is scary to them. Yeah. So what we found is that if we could make the steps so ridiculously small that they didn't seem to matter, um, like, again, exercising one minute a day, then um, the amygdala would stay quiet and you would build a habit. Because mm. the way we build habits is through small steps. If, if you do, if you, you, you know, if you call a telephone number once a week, the brain doesn't remember it. But if you, if you were to say those numbers every day, the brain locks it in because what the brain uses to decide what's important and needs to be stored and becomes a habit is things you do repetitively. It's why if you watch an hour of, of a TV, they show you the same commercial again and again and again and again. You think they would change it. But the mission of a commercial is not to entertain us. It's to build that brand into our mind. They know repetition is the way to do it. So you're actually better off doing something one minute a day, three or four or five days a week, than you are doing it once a week for an hour if you're trying to build a habit. The other beautiful thing about Kaizen is because the steps are so small, they don't require willpower, self-control, discipline. um, And therefore, again, the amygdala stays quiet because it's not taking any effort and you build a habit before the amygdala knew anything was going on. <laughs> yeah. It works beautifully. No, I, I love it. I love the way you tied it into the brain research there. And one of the other parts of your book, you talk about Jim Collins, one of our favorite business books of all time, of Good to yeah. Great. How does Small Steps apply to Good to Great? 
um, it actually applies quite beautifully. Um, Again, that was a study looking at 11 firms that were for 15 years where the stock market average next 15 years, seven times. Um, And in in the summation of the book, if you don't mind me reading a quote from that book, um, we kept thinking we'd find, quote, the one big thing, unquote, the miracle moment that defined breakthrough. We even pushed for it in our interviews, but the good to great executive simply could not pinpoint a single key event or moment in time that exemplified the transition. Frequently, they chafed against the whole idea of allocating points and prioritizing factors. In every good to great company, at least one of the interviewees gave an unprompted admonishment saying something along the lines of, quote, look, you can't dissect this thing into a series of nice little boxes and factors or an identifying moment of aha or the one big thing, unquote. It was a whole bunch of interlocking pieces that built one upon another. No matter, again, the last quote from that same paragraph, no matter how dramatic the end result, the good to great transformation never happened in one fell swoop. There was no single defining action, no grand program, no one killer innovation, no solitary lucky break, no wrenching resolution. Revolution. Good to great comes about by a cumulative process, step by step, action by action, decision by decision, turn by turn of the flywheel that adds up to sustained and spectacular results. That's the end of the quote. Mm. So even even that book found small steps were the way to make big gains. Yeah, I, I, I let, he, go ahead, Bob. Yeah. Now, there's if I could read one, one more quote from Fortune magazine. Okay. Um, Quote, and it's easy to quote, it's easy to believe that Jeff Bezos is one of those great innovators, but that's not exactly the case. His rise into Fortune 500 actually has little to do with innovation and more to do with iteration. If anything, Amazon demonstrates how a cutting edge internet company of all things can succeed slowly. This trick is taking a million tiny steps and learning quickly from your missteps. So again, even Amazon and the wealthiest man in the world found small steps to where the way to go. Yeah, I, I, I connect to that on many levels, but one of them is when we go into a, kind of a first or second meeting on a consulting engagement and the client often says, you know, what's the next big thing? I need a big step change. <laughs> and yes. uh, often we say, you know, it's just getting back to the blocking and tackling, you know, getting back to the sports analogy. I mean, it's not always – the fancy flea flicker or fancy play, it's often the team that wins and demonstrates excellence does the little things well, the basics well, and that's supported in the Jim Collins and your research as well. Yeah, I, I connect to that on many levels. Thank you for the those insights. So uh, one of the other things that really intrigued me, and I know it intrigues you, is the idea of positive recognition, both for yourself, for your peers, people around you, that what a strong motivator it is. So what does the research say about the importance of recognition or gratitude in your business or personal relationships? Um, one of the most consistent findings we found in the success research, one of the skills that showed up in every one of those studies I mentioned where people were followed anywhere from 15 to 75 years, is they were aware of something called we call the need for attention. Okay. That if any of the people listening to this have small children or even a dog, um, they know that when kids are little, the only thing they want is your energy, your attention. And yeah. somehow we've gotten the idea in our culture 
um, that that need for attention disappears somewhere between childhood and adulthood. But there's not a single study that's found that's the case. So success, that mommy, mommy, look at me, we don't outgrow. Um, <laughs> it comes so, in different variations, but yeah, need for attention. Absolutely. And so um, in successful organizations, people are getting small acknowledgments um, during the day. Uh, Southwest and Toyota are two of the companies famous for this. If there's a graduation, if there's a death, if there's a serious illness in the family, they reach out to say, are you okay? Is there anything we, we, we can do to help? These small moments where people realize that they're valued and appreciated. Do you call employees by their name? Do you look up in the hallway and smile at people that you may not even know if the organization is big? Those small acknowledgments day to day are critical, as well as either giving yourself small rewards or uh, giving someone else small rewards when they're making uh, changes. So the brain seems to respond to reinforcement, basically, is what I've taken a lot of words to say. No, yeah, I completely agree. Now, t just tie in the thought about critic, self-critic, and how the brain works on that and how we need to kind of quiet the critic a little bit in order to do this well. Yeah. M most people aren't aware of how hard they are on themselves. Because yeah. what happens growing up is um, when the amygdala is fire, when it's uh, act, when, when you get afraid as a kid, whether it's from a nightmare or the boogeyman under the bed or a kid whose school is picking on you, uh, whatever it is, uh, every animal has the exact same amygdala we do. And what makes other animals uh, less likely to get what we are currently calling stress disorders is built into their brain as a healthy response to fear. So when a, a, a deer is frightened, it runs away. When a bird is frightened, it flies away. When the mouse is frightened, it burrows. When a lion is frightened, it, it attacks. And I've asked audiences all over the world, Rick, if every other animal has a built-in response to fear, we must have one too. Mm -hmm. And what do you think it is? And nobody has ever given me the answer until I say, those of you with children, when your three, four-year-old had a nightmare or thunderstorm, what did they do? And the answer is the same all over the planet. Uh, they ran to my bed. And what would you do next? I held them and said, it's only a nightmare, as if that word meant anything to a small child. And what your daughter or son do next? They went right back to sleep. So human beings and uh, most of the higher primates, the chimps and whatnot, have a different response to fear than any other animal and that we're supposed to run to another for support. And so what happens in childhood is the brain builds in its own internal parent locked into the amygdala. So uh, and I, I, the way I demonstrate this to audiences about most of us having this harsh voice that beats us up if we're not making changes where the change isn't coming fast enough, I'll say to the audience, uh, do you consider rejection painful? Everybody says yes. Well, let me try to convince you that that's not even possible. And people look at each other like, where'd they find this guy? <laughs> so I'll go up to somebody in the audience and say, uh, ask them for their name. And she says, her name is Sally. So, so see if this rejection comes in many forms, but romantic reject, rejection is one form. So I go up to Sally and say, Sally, would you like to go out with me Saturday night? And imagine I say to the audience, Sally says, you know, Bob, I'd love to, but I'm busy flossing on Saturday night. <laughs> he usually gets a laugh. But as, uh, and I'll say, is that rejection? Does that hurt? And almost every hand agrees. Yep, that's a rejection that hurts. I say, well, let me see if that's what happened. I went up to Sally, asked her out. She gave me that lame excuse. 
as I walked away, which of these two voices happened automatically in the center of my head? Door number one. Boy, Bob, am I proud of you. Nice try. That was gutsy. Could have been a little smoother. Next time you'll do better. I am so proud of of you trying. Or door number, door number two. two. Boy, did you sound boy did you sound like a jerk. Who wants to go out with you? You're old, you're ugly, you're fat. Nobody likes you anyway. Which is more likely? And everyone in the audience agrees it's likely more likely the second voice. So I'll say, well, where was the pain? And Sally saying no, or that harsh voice in your head. Right. And it becomes obvious to people that harsh voice has been there. It's been there for most of us all of our lives. We don't see it as something separate from ourselves. So the minute we begin to realize that harsh voice, which we would never impose on anybody else, um, is built into the amygdala and isn't serving us when we need most to be compassionate and curious and creative. That voice is telling us what a loser we are, which just makes the amygdala roar, makes us even more frightened. Um, and shuts down the thinking part of the brain. So there's very um, simple exercises to reprogram, Kaizen steps, if you will, to reprogram that part of the brain so you get to hear a nurturing voice which calms the amygdala and gives you back your thinking brain so you can stay creative and problem-solving and compassionate when life is dealing you bad cards. So do tell. Have you got a tip or two on that, on how to quiet the critic? I'll give you I'll give you one. There's several, but okay. the one that we find most useful, um, and this can take a little bit of time and practice, is imagine uh, whatever the situation is, whether you're having financial reversals or relationships struggling, a child who's floundering, um, whatever the issue is you're struggling with. Imagine what you would say to your best friend, to your child, to a lover, to somebody you dearly uh, hold precious. What would you say to them? in that same moment, usually we try to have them write it down. Now that can take some practice. Okay. And uh, once they've got that, which is good, sometimes takes a little bit of effort, then we have them say it out loud two or three times a day in the tone of voice you would give to this precious person. Because the brain's building in not just the lyric, but the melody. Yeah. And if you say this, and the reason we, want, we recommend doing it out loud is every time you talk, the amygdala goes on. And okay. you're trying to build new learning into an old part of the brain. So um, practice that, that nurturing voice out loud two or three times a day. And like a commercial, um, the brain eventually decides this is where um, she wants me to go and builds that voice in for you. Hmm. Very so, good. What a great tip. Thank you for that. Thank you. Yeah. Sure. So let me move on to a topic I've been dying to ask you about. There's many in the success okay. literature. Uh, including myself, uh, that are big believers in aspirational goals or BHAGs, big, hairy, audacious goals, and those yes. kind of approaches to it. But how can we, can we marry that thought with small steps? Um, absolutely. The, I'm, I'm so glad you brought that up because the, the way uh, Kaizen works is it's not that you shrink the size of the goal. You just shrink the size of the steps. Yeah. And um, so you keep the goals as big and hairy and audacious as you like um, and look for very small steps to get there. And it just seems so counterintuitive that you can get to the same goal, uh, sometimes even faster with very small steps that you can get there with large steps. And that was my motivation for writing the book so I could take people through the science that because um, Kaizen works in two ways. One, The one is that 
um, if you're if you're exercising a minute a day, and then next week two minutes, next week three minutes, with after a while, like that cancer um, pain specialist, you forget to stop. And the other way Kaizen works is you're programming the brain for the leaps you want it to make. Um, for example, I'll ask an audience, how many of you remember the exact instant when you mastered driving? And almost nobody does. You vaguely remember being in a grocery store parking lot after hours with a car that was lurching down the road with you barely in control and parents that were losing their mind trying to uh, stay composed. Um, but at a certain point, you're driving down the road oblivious to the fact that the, the brain is making moment-to-moment life-saving decisions with no conscious effort on your part. You learned it incrementally, and the brain made the leap into mastery. Um, so those are the two ways Kaizen tends to work. And if you want, I can even take you through some great breakthroughs in uh, business and show you the Kaizen moment where they got the idea for it. Please do. Yes, thank you. All right. So uh, I'll, I'll just give you three or four. If you want more, you can stop me. Um, we got Disneyland from Walt Disney taking his two young daughters to an amusement park. Puts them on a ride, sits on the bench, collects them, puts them on the second ride, sits on the second bench, collects them. By the third ride and the third bench, feeling kind of bored, looking around at the other adults who were just as bored as he did, he thought there must be a way for a family to uh, share an amusement park together. We got the credit card from two New York businessmen out to dinner. They were arguing at one point over who was going to pay the check until they both realized neither of them had a dime. One of them lived, fortunately, a few blocks from the restaurant. He asked for the phone, called his wife, who came down with some cash. On the walk back to the apartment, these two men, remembering that moment's embarrassment with no money, thought, gee, there must be a simpler way to deal with credit cards. And... um, so deal with restaurant bills and um, Diners Club. Our first credit card was invented that night. Mm. I guess I'll just give you a couple more. Sure. We got barcodes from somebody trying to help grocery stores with their checkout process. Thought there had to be a way to speed it up. Couldn't figure out what to do. One day, feeling very sorry for himself, he goes off to the beach, staring at the waves, sticking his hand in the sand in frustration. Took his hand out, saw the sand sticking to the grooves on his fingers, and thought, "That's it." And barcodes were invented that day. One more uh, Netflix from a gentleman that was a, uh, a um, uh, avid video um, connoisseur. He lo- I, f- I forget the name now of that video player. It was so big. Blockbuster, thank you. Yep. Um, and he was a big Blockbuster fan. And then one day he picked up his pillow and realized there was a, a VHS, a video that he forgot to take back. He took it to Blockbuster, and they went ahead with a $43 late charge. And he thought, well, there's got to be a simpler way, that. and invented, of course, the DVDs. And the longer you kept the DVD, um, the, the, the more money he made. And just to show you about going back to your wonderful question about big, um, airy, audacious goals, if you think about the name he came up with, it was Netflix. It wasn't DVD flicks. He was already dreaming of using um, streaming before it was ever uh, essentially um, developed, that was his long-term dream. But again, taking it in small steps. Yeah, so, I, love, I uh, love it. Great examples. The post-it, the, the, post-it, the Band-Aid, the baby powder, okay. Schindler's List, Simpsons, Viagra, penicillin, microwave, frozen foods, Velcro. I could keep you here all 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 day. With no, no, all we, we we get the point. We, we agree. Yeah, <laughs> you said a statement here that I just want to modify slightly and see if you have a comment sure. on because it it rung true for me. 
you you said when we were talking about small steps uh, versus the aspirational goal, you're progressing your brain or you're teaching your brain, you're programming your brain for leaps you want to make. And my analogy there also, corporately, uh, that a leader or manager might be programming your team for leaps you want to make by getting confidence in small steps and successes and then you moving him to this kind of spot where you can truly be transformational or create the step change. Is that a fair comment into corporate world? And I guess your examples prove that out. It was beautifully said. Yeah, that's exactly right. Okay, good. So a couple other areas I wanted to get your input on and and how this applies to safety. And, you know, many of our clients are trying to reduce incidents and reduce human error. What does the research, what does your research say about reducing incidents and more specifically, even more importantly, major incidents in process safety or personal safety? Do you have research insights on that? There are, and the research is captured in a wonderful book, a 15-year study at the University of Michigan uh, called Managing the Unexpected. And basically, um, his re- what he did is he looked at emergency departments, nuclear power plants, and aircraft carriers, places where the price of any kind of error would be catastrophic. And basically, those that were successful without creating any big mistakes were doing two things. One was they made it safe for people to bring their doubts, questions, and concerns um, to higher ups before the problems got got too big. And there's actually a book that just came out last year that reinforces that called The Fearless Organization. But the other thing, going back to your question, is they looked for mistakes while they were so small, they seemed inconsequential and didn't matter. And so while the mistakes were very, very small, they could identify them and correct them before they got very big. You know, the, the most tragic example I can think of, and there are many, many of them, is that um, the Deepwater Horizon uh, explosion in the Gulf that killed 11 people on that platform, and I think we're still cleaning up that Gulf. There were over 200 spills before that fateful night when uh, the, um, the platform blew up. Yeah. So if you look for mistakes while they're so small, they're inconsequential, then you get to fix them before... They get to be too big. And Dr. Deming and Toyota kind of took that to a higher level because prior to them, the assembly line was the same everywhere in the world. They put the car on the assembly line. and At the end of the line, uh, quality control people would look over it and see how many things they could correct. And the only difference between Ford and Ferrari was how many people at the end of the line were going over it meticulously. And if you have gray hair like me, you remember no matter how much you paid for a car, you still had a half dozen things you had to take it back to the dealer to get fixed. Yeah. Well, Deming and and, and Tichiona Toyota said, we're not going to build cars that way anymore. They they put a cord at each step of the assembly line. So if, you, if somebody's putting on the right front tire and they see scratches on the fender, they pull the cord stopping the assembly line. They bring in the supplier and the engineer and try to fix it and start up the line again. And everybody thought Deming was crazy. How can you mass manufacture a product when you're stopping it every few feet to fix it? Turned out to be the most efficient way to build cars and everybody's copied it. So paying attention to mistakes while they're so small they don't seem to matter saves you from the big ones. But think about what you have to do in a culture so that people feel free to bring their fears and bring small errors um, to other people's attention. There was a sign in a Toyota factory that says, fix the problem, not the blame. Yeah. 
you know, it ties into Google came out with some teaming research, like what are the big characteristics of successful teams? And that was number one on it is how, how do you make it safe for all people to contribute and bring in their best ideas? And, and uh, I really resonate with your idea of catching the near misses and learning from the small things first rather than uh, exactly, and that yeah. can avoid the major ones. So great advice that ties in nicely to safety as well. So, Bob, we're sitting here in April 2020 taping this, and, and, and COVID-19 is everywhere around the world. We're facing this pandemic. Lots of fear and anxiety going on. What advice do you have for people in dealing with this crisis? Do you have any specific advice for, for April 2020? Um, yes, and that is that uh, fear is is one of the great gifts human beings have been given. It's probably one of the main reasons that we're on the planet because we didn't, as smart as we are, we didn't see well, run fast, weren't as strong as the animal used to prey on us. So fear allowed us to be careful as we walk through the savanna with his fancy brain, but a body that wasn't very competitive. So fear by itself is not the enemy. Um, what what the fear can allow us to do if we see it as healthy and not a sign of anxiety or stress or in any way make it a disease, it can motivate us to take better care of ourselves so our immune system stays as strong as possible. And then um, and you because again fear is designed to put us in action. Emotion is designed to put us in motion. So any actions you can take to take better care of yourself is one um, idea. And the other is going back to what I was saying about primates and humans, reaching for support is what the brain wants us to do when we're afraid. So asking for help uh, from uh, from others and giving help to others, both of those will calm the amygdala and strengthen the immune system. So um, we're, we're, we're expected and hopefully we'll come together to get through this as, as so asking neighbors and uh, your physician and others that you need help from as opposed to try to go in alone. Wow, great or, advice. Or to put it differently, sh- sharing your toilet paper. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Lots of memes out about that. No, great advice. <laughs> Using fear for a positive, for learning, for change, and for giving and reaching out and support. Bob, really appreciate your time today. Your insights are invaluable and uh, – Hope that uh, you stay safe and have a great day. Thank you. I really appreciate the, the, the op- opportunity, Rick. Wow, wasn't that terrific? Wasn't it great to have Dr. Bob on? Uh, his philosophies, his research, his background ties so nicely into what uh, I think we all believe on change and, and uh, personal development, and yet he's articulated it in a way that might help us take the next step in our journey, both as a company and as individuals. So final thoughts and summary, I'd wrap it up in these five comments. Small steps, small successes, small practice, and small moments. Number one, small steps is the first to uh, first step to aspirational goals. Number two, identifying and learning from small incidents lead to reducing major accidents. Number three, Highlighting small successes is a building block to transformational change in your company and as an individual. And number four, a small practice of kind affirmations can quiet the inner critic. And number five, finding small moments to remotely reach out to others to give and get connection will help us during this current crisis in April 2020. 
Thank you for spending your valuable time with us. Please, if you want more insights on small steps, please go to ciforlife.org and read some of the blogs there or send me your comments inside your podcast directory or directly to rickh at rlginternational.com. Until next time, live a life of sustainable, continuous improvement. 